Today is Tuesday, April 13th. The title for our devotional is God's Part, Our Part. This week, we're going through the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17. One of the things that likely jumps out to you as you read through this prayer is Jesus' language he uses to characterize his disciples and those who will believe in their message. He describes them as those whom you, that is the Father, have given me. A few examples. We'll read 1 John 17, verse 2, or verses 1 and 2. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Then in verse 6, he says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you have given me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. Then later in verse 9, he says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Then later in verse 24, he prays for the church, those who will believe the message of the disciples. He says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. So we see that Jesus often in this prayer characterizes those who believe in him as those whom the Father has given him. Characterizing the disciples like this may seem strange because we can look back at the beginning of the Gospels and see Jesus' personal action in calling the disciples and inviting them to follow him. We see him calling them to follow him in the miraculous catch of fish and many instances where Jesus meets his disciples and asks them to follow him. The disciples did not just sense God's calling and come running at random. Yet, Jesus still says that the Father gave them to him. So, within Jesus' prayer here, we catch a glimpse of his theology. In verse 2, he is grounding what he has just prayed for in verse 1. He prays in verse 1 for the Father to glorify him, so that he may glorify the Father. The grounding of that glorification is the authority that the Father has given Jesus over all humanity, and the eternal life that he then gives to those whom the Father has given him. In the first part of verse 2, then, the statement is simple. Jesus has authority over all humanity. The ESV translates it as flesh, but it just refers to all humanity. The idea is similar to that of Colossians 1, 15 through 20. In Romans 11, 36, 1 Corinthians 8, 6. I encourage you to check those out. That Jesus is indeed the ruler of all creation. So whereas the Father has granted Jesus authority over all humanity, the eternal life that he gives is only effective for those whom the Father has given him. Throughout the prayer, he seems to refer to his disciples this way. But here in verse 2 and later in verse 24, he seems to be speaking more broadly than to just the twelve, extending his view to all those to whom he will grant eternal life, all those who will believe in his name and know the Father. In the context, remember, Jesus is praying for the Father to glorify him. So it seems that this gift of eternal life to the elect is the primary way in which Jesus, and therefore the Father, is glorified. Yet, at the same time, contained within the same prayer, Jesus says that his disciples know the Father. They have kept his word. They received the words of the Father and came to know that Jesus came from the Father and have believed that the Father sent Jesus. 
I'll read some of those verses. But verse 3, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Verse 6, he says, Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. And in verse 7, Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. So, in these verses, what we see is that this relationship between what the Father does in salvation and what disciples do is often known as compatibilism. And it is assumed all throughout the scriptures, perhaps most notably in Acts 4, 27 to 28, which says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. To our minds, this seems like it needs further clarification. And frankly, I wish Jesus would have clarified this further. But he seems to be comfortable with leaving the tension, and so we must as well. What we can say for sure, however, is in some senses, disciples of Jesus are chosen by God, and they must also accept the revelation of Jesus and know the Father and believe in Jesus. The question here that has plagued the minds of believers since Jesus is which one logically comes prior? Did God's grace cover all the sins of humanity? Then God look into the future and see who would accept him and therefore deem those as the elect, as the Arminians would claim. Or did he choose the elect and then apply his grace for the elect to believe, as the Calvinists would claim? I would argue that this text and others support the latter, but as you can see from the text that this conclusion is disputable and many faithful followers of Jesus come to different conclusions. For additional content, I've linked you to an article in the Gospel Coalition from D.A. Carson titled, Are Some Determined to Believe the Worst About Reformed Theology? So if this is a topic that interests you, head over to the devotional page where you find the link. Let's go ahead and give that article a read. For reflection time today, simply ponder the mystery of God's choosing you and the revelation of Jesus to be accepted in faith. How do we maintain a theology of God's sovereignty and human responsibility that is both consistent and faithful to the witness of Scripture? We are not free to just claim God's sovereignty when we want and human freedom when we want. We must first see what Scripture says and go from there. So today, as you're reflecting on this, commit to pursuing truth in the Word of God and going where that truth leads you.